Hey, Meg, have you ever read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath? No, I haven't. What's it about? Well, I was thinking of it after listening back onto my talk with Stephanie McFarlane, who is a PhD candidate in the Damshin Lab in the Department of Integrative Biology and also my research mentor. So there's this part in The Bell Jar about a fig tree. And the main character is imagining her life, the possibilities of her life as a fig tree that's branching in multiple ways. And she's looking at the different opportunities of, of her life as different branches of the fig tree. And at the end of each branch, there's this fig fruit. <laughs> and as she keeps scanning over the tree, she worries that if she chooses a- another fruit, all of the rest of the fruits will die, which is metaphorical of like a fear of choosing a path and regretting all the paths that you didn't take. I was thinking about this tying back to my talk with Stephanie because in her, her path to where she is now, she had so many opportunities and like she, she grew the branches based on what she thought she wanted, what other people thought she wanted, and what society thought of her as a woman. Welcome to Propelling Women in Power, a podcast about the careers of women in energy at the Wisconsin Energy Institute on the UW-Madison campus and our sister institution, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center. I am Meg Riker, and I am a junior undergraduate student studying civil engineering. I am a science writer intern with a passion for meeting people from different scientific disciplines and sharing their stories. And I'm Michelle Chung, a senior undergraduate student studying biology and environmental studies. I love finding fun ways to highlight the research and people here at WEI and GLBRC. Here, we talk about women scientists and engineers' career paths, the obstacles they have faced, and most importantly, their advice for young women scientists and engineers. It is our goal to highlight their individual experiences, mentors, and work-life balance while seeking advice for young women in science and asking the question, who and what facilitated your success? Today we talked to Stephanie McFarlane. We talk a lot about how she found the right branch or maybe like how she redefined her tree of possibilities. So we talked about a lot of great things about motherhood, what it's like being a student, juggling so many different things, just like you and me. And I'm really excited for us to give this a listen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Awesome. Let's get into it. I'm a fifth year PhD student in the botany department, and I am in Ellen Damshin's lab. And I, I'm a research assistant right now, so most of my time is spent doing my research, and I have um, about six students, undergrad students that I mentor, and in addition to my um, university hat, I'm uh, also a mother of three. To tie it back to like the building that we're in now, WEI, do you want to tell me a little bit about how you're connected to this place? Sure. Ellen Damshin, my PI, is has a collaboration with Claudio Gratton's lab, and um, one of his graduate students and I started our research together four years ago, and we designed our research study together working with the Natural Resource um, Conservation Service, the NRCS, and so I've been working in and out of this building for a few years. Can you tell me a little bit more about your research? Sure. Well, I guess first off, I'll say that I'm a plant community ecologist and a restoration ecologist. And um, plant community ecologists are really interested in looking at how plants assemble um, in different ecosystems and um, why they get there and how they got there and why they continue to be there. And a restoration ecologist is really looking at um, how we can best restore ecosystems, what are the best methods, and then looking at why sometimes those restored ecosystems aren't working and what's going wrong. Historically, a lot of our land was converted to farmland, even if it wasn't great farmland. So they would put in ditches and drain our wetlands in order to grow crops. But that isn't, those, those fields typically aren't sustainable, they're not very productive, and so, and they're hard to work. And so NRCS has a program called the Wetlands Reserve Program where they take this, these um, 
former egg fields and they restore them into the original wetlands and then the adjacent uplands they restore to prairie. And I'm looking at how these communities are doing after they've been restored, their outcomes in terms of the plant community, but also pollinators and other insects. One thing that I actually like have never learned about you is how you got into your field. Well, it's kind of roundabout. Um, I am a first-generation college student, and so I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and my parents um, owned a sawmill, and all they cared about is that I had the opportunities they didn't, so they said I had to go to college. So that was on my radar as something I had to do, but I didn't have a lot of prep before I came to college. And then when I, I actually started at a community college and then transferred to UW. And when I, um, as an undergrad, I arrived here and there were so many options and I was all over the board. I was a French major and I thought about psychology and I really liked math. <laughs> um, but I took a botany course for a prerequisite and I fell in love. Mm-hmm. And it was the the instructor was really passionate and i learned about how cool plants were because plants have all these cool adaptations and they can't move so animals are great but they can move around and plants are stuck in one place and so i think thinking about how a plant has to evolve to live in one place got me really excited about science and that's how i got here yeah i was wondering if there was like maybe a mentor in that early time of you being in college that led you towards botany and science um, I did. I did have um, once I got into botany and plant ecology. I took a class with um, um, Dr. Givnish in the botany department, and it was a research-based class. And I really liked learning about the research methods, and we had to design our own research project. And I really liked that. And then I just continued on that vein of taking courses that were more research-based, and um, he helped give me the um, confidence I needed to continue in the field. And I know you took a break after your undergrad to like travel mm-hmm. and things like that. What drew you to do that, but then also what drew you to come back to school afterwards? So I, I've always been really interested in the world and different cultures, and along with that, ecosystems like as as an ecologist I really like diversity but it's not just natural diversity it's also human diversity and the differences in culture so I always knew I wanted to travel and it was my goal to go to into the Peace Corps so I got the skills I needed to continue to build my scientific um, CV doing lots of work with um, different government organizations and going out and collect, doing field work in the summer. And then I was also able to um, do the Peace Corps. But once that was complete, then I, I always knew I wanted to come back to grad school. Mm-hmm. Once, I, once I had um, got a taste for research and realized how much I loved it, I always knew I'd come back. I just had other things I wanted to do first. Right, yeah. Going into grad school, did you know what you would expect? Like, the research aspect, was it what you had planned on? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think um, it's hard to know before you start what a commitment it is and how much you have to invest in the research in order to um, achieve your goals of like making a hypothesis and then um, having a good good idea of how what questions to ask and the to design your research and all the steps that go into that I, I had just done many projects nothing on a PhD yeah, scale, scale yeah. and so I, I didn't quite understand what that took and I think in particular I didn't understand what it would take as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually started my PhD um, a really long time ago <laughs> in 2005. And I was really excited about it. And I had a, a really great research idea and I was loving doing it. And I then became pregnant with my first child. Oh, wow. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. And so I was in my program for a year after I had my first child. And I found the balance to be really difficult and didn't quite have the support structure I needed at the time to be able to... Um, mm-hmm 
finish my degree. So I actually, I stopped my PhD at that time mm -hmm. um, after a couple of years. So you continued for a couple of years, like while you were raising your first child. I, I did for about a year and a half after he was born. I tried to make it work, but all of my, um, my research, like the ideas and the questions, they were based in Madagascar, which is where oh, I had okay. um, completed my my Peace Corps stint. Uh -huh. And so my plan was, um, as a plant ecologist interested in evolution and community assembly, to think about how all of that diversity in Madagascar and the adaptive radiation, how those plants evolved and spread across the country. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really excited to go back and do that work. But then I had a baby, and I guess what I wasn't prepared for in particular was how you navigate being a mom and a student at the same time. And my research was so, um, it was going to Madagascar for six months, and wow. that's not really a safe place to travel with a baby. Um, and so I, and he had some medical complications when he was younger, and so that, that, that combination of my planned research no longer being viable and having um, a baby who had some medical complications left mm -hmm. me with a difficult choice. And I tried to make it work for a while because I'm stubborn and I didn't want to give up. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I ultimately decided to stop. Was there anyone like in, in your field that you knew of that was like maybe further along in their career that like was, was a mom and was able to do anything like that? Or did you not really have a role model there? Most of um, the women in my department at the time, I didn't know well, they weren't close mentors. My mentors were men and I saw them do it, but I didn't know how they accomplished it um, because it didn't, it didn't seem viable to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I had, um, at the time, my husband was also a graduate student. We went back to grad school together and his advisor, Monica Turner, mm -hmm. um, is an amazing female and um, female educator, scientist, researcher, woman, all of those things. And I remember when I had decided to stop my PhD, I told her because I you know, was friendly with her because um, Tim was in her lab. And she really encouraged me to rethink the decision. Mm -hmm. um, I could see at the time she was very, she, she, it saddened her to see a woman leaving the sciences because um, the balance of being a mom and a researcher is difficult. Um, and she encouraged me to figure out how, how to make it work. And she didn't want to see me give up my dreams. And so that was really important to me mm -hmm. because she supported me in a way that I hadn't been supported. And she also supported my decision to, right. to pause my PhD. Mm -hmm. Though at the time I didn't know it was a pause. I, I felt like if you choose motherhood, you're kind of like that's the that's end. it that's the end mm -hmm. that there isn't a way to get back and so that was a really difficult hard decision for me and I struggled with it for years after I stopped feeling like I had made the wrong decision because mm -hmm. I really love research and I love science and I didn't want to not do that right yeah and so you said like Monica she was the first person to really be be that like validating source for you did you not find the same validation and like your your male mentors they were great mentors uh -huh. but it, it was just I, I don't think that they could speak to it from the at the same because the same lens right. right you know they, they just had a different lens and so my advisor at the time was awesome he was totally supportive he was supportive of me being a PhD student for half time so I could stay at home with my baby and be a grad student but I think most grad students out there realize you, you can't be a grad student half time. <laughs> like you like you don't get very far and and I I had to then like redo like I had to come up with a whole new um, research project and redo like my prelims and all of that sort of thing. And that was just 
too much for me at a time where I was going through a huge life transition mm -hmm. of being a mom and wasn't planning any of it and didn't, I, I've always been one of those people, I'm a go-getter. And so I didn't think that being a mom or a woman would stop me or slow me down. So I didn't prepare myself for the challenges. Like I wasn't mentally prepared that, oh, this could be difficult, that having being a mom and this might pose challenges. I was more naive and I just said I could do it without thinking about how I was going to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. What, like in terms of support, was like missing in those early days? It's hard to pinpoint one thing. I think that for one, in academia, we don't talk enough about a work-life balance, that there's a lot of pressure to um, achieve our goals. And, and often you do that by working as hard as you can, putting as many hours as you can in a week, or feeling like you aren't up to you're the standards you should be at, that mm -hmm. you're not, that you don't belong here. Um, you feel like an imposter because you don't know as much as the people around you because if you're only working 20 to 30 hours a week and your peers are working 40 to 70 hours a week, they're making a lot more ground mm -hmm. and um, they're moving along further than you are. And that was really a challenge for me. I really struggled with imposter syndrome. I just don't think I had thought about it enough and I didn't go through the mental preparations of doing the work to understand that I'm not an imposter, that, I, that we're all on our different paths and each right. path is, is important and, and has a different perspective that makes our science better. Now I'm in a lab with a, a woman, a PI, who is also a mother and in our lab we talk a lot about the work-life balance and how to say no to things and and make sure that you are a whole person and mm -hmm. not just working on your academics that it's also for me I have to work on my research and be excited about it which I am and make progress I also have a family that I need to take care of because three kids is a lot but then there's also me as a person that needs to make sure that I'm exercising and, and mentally in a good state that I can tackle both of those things, which are both big. Mm -hmm. And so I think my current mentor is really good at that. She talks a lot about work-life balance and saying no when you need to and just being honest that you know some months you're gonna have more. There's gonna be more doctor's appointments or more <laughs> home life things going on and you're not gonna be able to maybe do as much and to just be open about that and then when you can, um, be productive and focus on it. And I think having that permission makes you, one, it helps reduce the imposter syndrome and it helps, it helps reduce anxiety as a whole because if you're worrying about what you're not doing, then when you do it, you're just worried that you're not doing enough or that you're behind and that makes your time less efficient. And so to let, kind of let go of those worries mm -hmm. and just do what you love because you love it is a really great way to do science. Right, yeah. You brought up the fact that um, in like grad school, there's an expectation for you to like always be doing your best, always be doing your most. Do you think there's like that extra expectation because you're a woman and you're also a mother that there's even more of an expectation for you to be on top of things? I think that there's certainly an expectation to when you are working that you have to be super efficient. Um, but I think for the most part, in in my my path, I have been able to ignore those expectations for the most part because you can't if you don't ignore them, it's hard to move forward because they're all around you. And so I see it more in other people mm -hmm. than I do in my own life because I just try to put on my blinders and just go forward and and just be okay with who I am and not worry about what other people are expecting of me. Yeah. Because when I do that, I, I don't, I'm not as good. I, uh -huh. <laughs> frankly, it's, it's very stressful to worry what, about what other people are thinking and what their expectations are. And I found that um, if I don't worry about it, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting the expectations anyways. Was that a mindset that came from just like, 
live in life or was it like instilled in you at a young age? No, it, it has come. I think being a mother actually really helped with that because I guess it's not just about me. It's, uh, it's about my family and it, it gave me the confidence to just let go of the, the me things a little bit, uh-huh. if that makes sense. And I... I also think, again, um, my advisor, Ellen, is really great uh, at, you know, talking about how in academia we all feel imposter syndromes at times and we ha- how we have to let that go and just just do our work and recognize that we're, if we're here, we belong here. They, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, the, the, the university doesn't just take anyone. And so if, if you're here, you belong here and to do your best and sometimes your best is your b work and and that's okay because you are balancing lots of things and 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 so that really helps too that okay i don't always have to be doing my a work to have a mentor say sometimes your b work is is good enough and because that's really good work still it's not like your b work is bad work Mm -hmm. it's still really good and it's better than probably lots of people's a work yeah but so just not hold yourself up to this perfection all the time because it can it it can slow you down and bog you down and kind of suffocate you. So you left you left your uh, initial PhD and went into being a full-time mother, was that it? For nine years. For nine years, yeah, that's that's a break. <laughs> I'm wondering what spurred the decision to come back. I knew I didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom permanently. I wanted, like, it was nice when my kids were young, and ideally I would have found something part-time because it was really hard to be a stay-at-home mom. I felt like a big part of me was missing, mm-hmm. but I think it, it was just, it was hard to find that balance. And, and, and for women, there aren't a lot of part-time positions when your children are young that you can maintain a professional career part-time. That They don't let you do that <laughs> in most places. It's like you're either, you're all or you're nothing. I knew I wanted to have a career. And I thought that the doors were closed for academia because I thought I had made my decision and that was it. And so I thought about going into nursing because I'm like, oh, I really like teaching and I like science and nurses do that. And and I took a couple classes, like just like prerequisites that you need for nursing school. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, I do not want to be a nurse. It's like, <laughs> I it's a really respectable field and um, so important for society, but it wasn't where my passion was. And then I was just thinking about research and science, and actually there was a position opening in the botany department for a lab manager. And I had basically the equivalent of a master's degree. I'd had a couple years of my PhD, and I had my research. I had started my research, um, and I just stopped, and I didn't complete it. I didn't get a master's first. I was on a PhD track, but I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I should maybe, I can still apply for this lab manager. I like TA'd the course when I was a graduate student. I know it well. I think I'd do a great job, and I applied. And I wasn't considered because I didn't have a master's or a PhD. And I'm really thankful for Tom Givnish and Susie Wilwoof in the botany department because at the time I had asked them to write me letters of recommendation Mm -hmm. because they were the professor and the lab coordinator at the time when I was a TA for the course. So I knew that they could write me a good letter of recommendation. And when it came back that the university wouldn't consider my application because I didn't have the degree, um, I let them know and I thanked them for writing me a letter of recommendation. And they both said to me, they're like, just finish your degree. Mm. <laughs> they're like, if that's what you want to do, just finish your degree. I'm like, well, I can't. They're like, why not? I said, because I quit. And they're like, yes, you can. And I just needed to hear that. I just needed someone to tell me that I could. Like you can do it. Because <laughs> I didn't think you could. Like that wasn't, it's like an untraditional path, right? Mm-hmm. Like people don't stop and then start again. And so I didn't think I could. Um, but then when they told me 
I could. And that sounds so silly. Of course I could, but I didn't, it wasn't a model I had seen. Mm-hmm. And when you don't see it, you don't realize it is possible. But I applied to my program again and I got back in and here I am in my fifth year and I'll be finishing up hopefully by the end of this year. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) A crazy story. I had no idea about you had started and then stopped and then started again. (laughs) Um, How was that process of like starting again? It was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I was so excited to be back. I missed it so much. And I loved being at home with my kids. And I, like I said, in an ideal world, I could have done both. I could, like the 50-50 would have been enough to make me feel like I was meeting, like that I was an acceptable example of a graduate student and that that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel that way. And some of that is probably self-imposed by societal pressures. It wasn't like my advisor at the time was telling me or like was making, you know, he, he was supportive, but it was just the models around me. It was what is expected of graduate students in general. And so when I came back, I was so excited to be on campus again. I was so excited to be teaching. And I had a, a new lens for all of it to where when I, my first um, couple years as a graduate student before kids, I felt that imposter syndrome mm-hmm. weigh on me a lot, especially as a first um, generation college students. And then I was working on my PhD and everyone else around me had had so much more experience and had done all the right things to prepare themselves for their, their, their journey. And I didn't feel like I had. So I had serious imposter syndrome and a lot of anxiety. But when I came back, I just didn't care because <laughs> I was back and uh-huh. I was a mom and I was doing it and I was going to finish it and no one was going to stop me. And I was able to shed a lot of what the younger version of me wasn't able to. Uh-huh. And like so the societal expectations <laughs> no longer like weighed on you as much. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I, I was really excited to be doing research and teaching and all of that and had a, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think if anything, I probably went back into it a little bit too strong <laughs> and then, and then like neglected home a little bit more than I would have it was like a Mm -hmm. pendulum like like all and then too much and now I feel like I'm at a really nice balance where I can take you know I just took three weeks off my kids were didn't go to school for three weeks and I worked at home and I worked I did do some work on my research but most of the time I was being a mom that's something amazing to me about the Damton lab and like everyone that's part of the lab is that the the emphasis on such a, a good work-life balance is like, that's like at the forefront of everything that we do. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, but obviously it, it sounds like it took you a little bit to figure that out. What was that process like figuring out how you balance both? I think it's, it's just experimentation, <laughs> you know, like, and, and I think it's also knowing that sometimes you're gonna have a busy semester and you're gonna have to work more than you want to. Like for example, in the fall, I was working on a couple different papers. I I still am working on them, but I was also giving a presentation at an international conference and I had a lot of um, data cleaning and analyses to do to prep for both the papers I was working on and the presentation. And so I was working 60 hours a week for pretty much the whole semester. And so that was, is not my typical work amount, but it's also um, okay because I knew it was short term and that I was going to then be able to take time with my kids and just chill out over the holidays and play lots of board games and cook together and do all of those sorts of things. And so I think that part of it is knowing that sometimes you're gonna have a deadline and you're gonna have to work really hard for that And then the balance might come a little bit later where then you take time to just recover (laughs) and and, um, reconnect with your family. And I and sometimes I, you know, I think that you always feel guilty about your choices to a degree when you're working that long. Um, But I also think it's a really good lesson as a woman for a woman to give her family. And so I'm really happy that my kids can see that I prioritize two things that they that when they need me, I'm there. 
and I can take two weeks, three weeks off and like hang out with them and build snowmen. Um, but that sometimes my attention has to be on working on my, my degree for me, because that's important for me as a person, as a woman to fulfill my dreams and that, and that if they want to fulfill their dreams, they have to work hard. And this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. What you were saying about like what you show your family, your dedication to your work and your dedication also to them. I see that as like someone that you mentor to you, like you lead by example, I guess you could say. Um, and I definitely see the merit of like valuing that balance. I have a, a unique position as someone that you're mentoring, given all of your experiences, the winding journey that you've had to where you are now, what are the like most important things that you want someone to know that you are mentoring? When I'm mentoring, I first and foremost um, try to help my students see what they're capable of, <laughs> because I think we're all capable of a, a lot and we need someone to believe in us sometimes before we know how to believe in ourselves. And when you're learning, it's just like you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> That's true for everyone, like it's the process. And so I like to remind my students that they are still learning. Even as an undergrad or a PhD or a postdoc or a faculty member, we're all still learning. And we, we can't know everything and, and then that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so for my students that I mentor, I want them to know it's okay that they don't know everything and I don't expect them to, and that I trust them to try to learn it and share it with me. And then I get to learn too, because they're learning new things and to believe in themselves and, and to not be held up to knowing everything and those expectations. And, and I guess in my mind, it's helping them have the tools to break the imposter syndrome early on, mm -hmm. um, to just know that they're doing great, that they belong there and that we're learning. And part of learning is making mistakes and failing and learning from those to make our science better. Yeah, with you mentoring me, I feel like it's just the safest space to be like, I, yeah, I don't know what's <laughs> happening right now. And you're always so reassuring. And so like, yeah, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm wondering where you get that like driven attitude from. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, probably, you know, a lot of who we are probably comes from our family. And my mom, um, her parents were immigrants and my dad's parents were farmers and they were poor and they started their own business and they made a lot happen for themselves, even though they didn't necessarily have all the opportunities that I have. And so I think just seeing a determination in them and knowing that if you set a goal, if you work hard, you can do it. And, and, and my family was always like that, whether it be um, fixing an appliance that was broken or building a table or whatever it was, it was just like the random things <laughs> um, in life. They just tried to figure out themselves. And so I think I saw that if you have a goal and you work towards it, Mm -hmm. um, you can eventually get there if it's important enough. Yeah, everything is figure outable. <laughs> yeah, I uh, was just saying yesterday about how uh, like almost everyone in our lab is a woman. <laughs> Has it always been that way? What have you seen that's changed? Mm -hmm. What do you want to change? So that's that's a really interesting question, and I and something I've actually thought a lot about in science in general. Um, I'm actually working on a paper with the lab group with El with Ellen and um, a former PhD student is leading the project, Janine Richards, looking at women and race and, and in ecology in particular. And um, we're just starting that paper. But it's, it's based on Ellen Damshin wrote a paper in 2005 about visibility. It's called Visibility Matters, and it's looking at women in, in, in ecology. And that paper found that at the undergrad and grad student level, there's equal representation of men and women in ecology. And that as you move up 
to postdoc, there's still pretty equal representation, but maybe not, not quite as good as at the lower levels. But by the time you get to assistant professor and um, full professor, women are not represented as well. And looking around me on campus, you can see that, that women aren't as well represented in the higher positions in departments as men are. And I'm really excited to be working on this paper to see what we find out for um, what's happening, happening now. For the 2005 paper that Ellen wrote with her co-authors, it was looking at textbooks and seeing who's represented in the textbooks. And at that time, the scientists represented were mostly male. And so again, what you see trickles in. And it's like, mm -hmm. what is possible is based on what we see around us. Right. And then thinking again um, about what are professors choosing to put in their lectures. And I know, ITA General Ecology with Ellen for a number of years, and she really made an effort to make sure that she had not just women, but minoritized people and as many examples as she can because sh she knows that it's important that what you see <laughs> as your mentors and the leaders in the field and that that impacts accessibility to mm -hmm. everyone else. Let's let Mark, one of our producers, jump in. So one of the things you said you weren't sure about was how things were changing in your field. What are some of the steps that you would take to increase women in underrepresented groups in ecology? That's a great question. I think one of the first things that could be done, at least based on my own challenges, is at least when children are younger and they need you more, to have it be more acceptable to have a part-time position and have it clear that when you're doing that, what the expectations are, that you're not expected to achieve the same amount as someone who's doing it full-time if you're doing it part-time and have that be really clear and supported. And I can speak to that from my path. And I think that as far as getting diverse groups um, in general, is it, I think it has to start early on <laughs> and um, it, hiring people that are from diverse groups so that that visibility is there so it, that students, whether it be high school students or undergrads, can see that that is an option for them and, and making it a safe space for them when they get there. And we have a lot of work to do in both of those areas. And I know that the campus is really working to hire more and more diverse people because that visibility is so important. But I think continuing that as a first generation college student, I know that is hard, you know, because you don't have all of the same experiences. And I think just having open conversations and being like, you know, we don't all have the same experiences, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. And having programs that can help people who have different backgrounds and have different experiences that are bright and talented and can make our science better. You were about to stop for the first time and you got a pep talk from Mom Monica Turner, mm -hmm. right? What did she say? She just encouraged me to push through even though it was hard because she didn't want to see me not continue. And so this was a long time ago. So the exact thing she said, I, I don't remember. I left feeling encour like encouraged to stay and kind of pushed to stay because she saw my talent and she saw my potential and she believed in me and that felt really amazing. And I saw that and at the same time I felt the importance of, for her to see women stay in science, but then I also felt support in my decision. And so it was like kind of threefold of like all the things that someone could give you, <laughs> which is making you feel good about who you are and believing in you, wanting to help you make the field better for future women and knowing that it's possible, while also supporting me as an individual and um, allowing me to feel good about my decision if that's what was best for me at the time. 
you said uh, it was different when you came back. You like didn't have the the fear and the anxiety. What was different? I think that it's life. <laughs> I think living a little bit more of life and and having had some challenges as a mother. For example, my daughter was really sick when she was a baby and she almost died. And she has um, a genetic disorder that, um, sorry. Um, That's scary. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like. You got through that. It's like you just, you like, yeah, right. You get through, <laughs> you, like, so you get through things. <laughs> how hard could grad school be? It's yeah, it was just a different life perspective, right? It's like you have three kids, they're full of challenges, whether it be some medical issues or just being at home with them all day every day. And I I just gained confidence in who I was. For me when I was younger, I I didn't have a longer as much of a long-term perspective. I was like, I want my degree and I want to be a faculty member and I want to do research. But it wasn't it wasn't a wide detailed lens. It was just like a straight it was a straight path. And I I think that with a little bit of time, I just could see myself as a whole more. Something you said I related to tremendously, which was having a kid um, is relieving in this weird way that it's your life is no longer about you and you don't have to like shoulder the burden of your own expectations anymore. And somehow it like opens things up and makes it relieves attention of what you have to do for yourself. It's mm -hmm. not about you anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think just before it was like the grad school was what you did to get the job you wanted. And so now I see grad school as my job. I'm here, this is my job. I'm here because I want to be. It's an incredibly privileged position to be a student in science, being able to ask the questions I'm interested in and do my research. I, I have a lot of control over that. And how, privilege, how, how lucky am I? How much privilege do I have that I can do that? And it's not a great salary, but it's still a salary. I just feel like that is a, a I feel very fortunate to be in this position. And so I just look at it as a job and I do that job. And I, I think also, and this is an advice I would give to um, other people as well, is that instead of worrying about the job or being everything you can or like being what people expect you to be. Be who you wanna be. Do the amount of work that you want to do that's sustainable for you and do it in the best you can. And if it doesn't work out or if it's not enough, then that's not the right job for you. But I think that by just having that attitude, it is often, it can be enough that you don't, you don't necessarily see that drawing your your boundaries of where it's like okay I can't work anymore on this it doesn't feel like it feels like if you don't work more on that it's not going to be enough and you're not going to succeed but instead of worrying about success worrying about you and making sure you have that balance and doing what feels good to you working hard doing the best you can and then when you're done being like okay I'm done now and if this isn't enough then this isn't the career choice for me and so far, I've found that that's been enough for my PhD. It's been enough. And I, I'm lucky to have the lab I do because they support that decision. But I'm also getting my research done. So it is working without the additional pressures. So if there's like any one thing that you want me to take away as someone that you mentor, what would it be? Any one thing for you to take away? <laughs> you in particular? <laughs> well, that might make me emotional. <laughs>
I guess for you, Michelle, um, I would want you to take away that you are. <laughs> I'm going to get emotional too. Um, brilliant and fun and unique and creative. And I've been so impressed with your ability to be um, your independence and your, your determination <laughs> have all been really admirable. And you can do whatever you want because you have the skills and the personality and just the awesomeness to do it. And so I feel very, very privileged and lucky that I was able to mentor you because you are an outstanding person, both as a scientist and just an individual. And so I would hope that you would always know that about yourself. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, I'm so blessed to have someone to mentor me that always reminds me of that. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You are. You really are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were talking earlier. Another way that you lead by how you live is how open you are to wearing your heart on your sleeve. <laughs> and I think that's just like the strongest thing ever, that you're not afraid to show how you feel. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, this is, a, it's related, but something I was hoping that would come up is like thinking about different stereotypes of what science is. And science is supposed to be objective and clear and efficient. And then when we think about stereotypes of women, women are subjective irrational and distracted. And so I think that there's a message that women don't belong in science just based on these stereotypes of what science is and what women are. But we forget that science is a social construct. It is subjective because all of society is subjective. And yes, it is important to be as objective as we can, but we can't be objective without acknowledging our biases because we all have them, every single person. And so I, I just think that that's something um, that is important to me and why I, I want to be true to that. Being honest about a given day or a given feeling doesn't make me a bad scientist. I would argue my ability to see that it's all subjective and that there are these differences and acknowledge, like try to find it. it's like, oh gosh, I am subjective. Mm -hmm. How am I subjective? And trying to find the ways I'm subjective and then collaborating with people who are different than me, who have a different perspective that can help me see where my biases might be and how they're different than theirs. And like then forming a collaboration of people that can make science stronger and better and I think that that is important to be who we are. And so I really appreciate that you said that. And, and sometimes it does take strength. So I appreciate that you saying that as well. So what in this conversation made you think about things in your own personal fig tree, especially since you're graduating and maybe moving on to a different chapter in your life? I think... Every once in a while, I, I get caught seeing all my figs dying. But from that conversation with Stephanie, she really reshaped like how she saw her tree of possibilities. And I think the big factor there was perspective, shifting your perspective to a more long-term viewpoint. Because in the tree where your figs die from opportunities that you don't take, you're very tunnel-minded if that's how you see this like bounty of opportunities in your life. Mm -hmm. And for me right now, it's like a constant balance between what in Stephanie's experience, like what she thought she was able to do and like what, what you can actually do. And so I'm always constantly caught between 
seeing all my figs dying but then to go back to the metaphor it's like this tree is growing the fig that i reach will have just ripened as i get there and new ones will grow you know as you move forward through life so i also wanted to hit upon the very personal relationship you have with your mentor Uh, when i was listening back to this interview um i noticed just how comfortable you were with her and how honest and how direct she was and you were with her and that uh, relationship really, really struck me. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your relationship with her as a mentor and a person. So I first met Stephanie when I was, when I was a sophomore and my relationship with her is really just like grown through these years. We navigated doing research in the pandemic together. I have learned so much about life from her and especially like when talking to other students my age and like their experiences in research it I think it's a lot different she's very hands-on and personal with how she she mentors I've said this before how I really want to talk to her because she's someone that wears her heart on her sleeve Mm -hmm. and like isn't afraid to be vulnerable that's so powerful in a mentor yes to show that you can really show when you're feeling weak and that's even better for everyone in the long run because Mm -hmm. you're showing all the parts of yourself so people can relate to that Mm -hmm. and know that they they can show all the parts of themselves too and I'm so glad Mm -hmm. that um, I got to talk to her I got to hear the the inner workings of how she came to be such an awesome mentor and from the, our talk today, it's it's clear that she really, she she cultivated that. It's not an instantaneous development. Right, yeah. And it was just so awesome to talk to her. It was great to listen to. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. And that's our show. Thank you to everyone listening. We're your hosts, Michelle Chung. And Meg Riker. The show was produced by us and Mark Griffin and edited by myself and Mark Griffin. Thanks again to our guest, Stephanie McFarlane, graduate student in the Damshin Lab. And see you next time on Propelling Women in Power. What is your superpower? My superpower? Oh gosh, I don't know that I have a superpower. I guess if I had to pick one, I think it's being in tune with my emotions and acknowledging them and accepting them and that when they're emotions that are unnecessary seeing them and letting them go and that when they are necessary talking about them because often they're there for a reason